In the winter of 1994, the Nashville Tennessean made me its rock music writer. This wasn't a promotion. I'd been hired as a food writer, but sucked terribly. So I was moved over to music, a subject I knew more about, but not a ton more. Anyhow, one day Gilby Clark, Guns N' Roses guitarist, was coming to Nashville to play a solo gig at the cannery, and we set up a preview interview via phone. Clark and I probably chatted for about 20 minutes, and one of the things he told me was, I haven't said anything officially, but I'm not going back to Guns N' Roses. Oh, I thought, okay. I included the word somewhere deep down in my story, thinking nothing of it, because I was a moron. Well, two days later, the Associated Press Wire featured the headline, Guns N' Roses Clark tells Tennessean he's leaving group. My story made national news, with news that didn't strike me as even remotely national. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Devin Gordon, the former GQ executive editor and author of a fantastic new book coming out today titled So Many Ways to Lose, the true story of the New York Mets, the best worst team in sports. This is episode number 199. Let's sing some Yang. Oh, Devin, first of all, I want to uh, congratulate you because you, you're the first person to show up wearing a jersey, which, which I respect you're wearing for those who can't see, which would be everybody. You're wearing a Tom Seaver Mets jersey. Where did you get the Tom Seaver Mets jersey? Oh, yeah. It's a, it was my uh, groomsman gift um, from my best friend from college, my roommate from college. Um, and I've had the jersey and worn it to every Mets game since. Um, the jersey has lasted. The marriage has not. The marriage is over, but I still have the jersey. Now, did he ask you? What Met jersey would you want? Like, could you have gotten a Mackie Sasser Mets jersey out of that deal? He didn't ask me. He's, he, he, he surprised us all with it. Um, he got them different kinds of jerseys for the other groomsmen corresponding their favorite teams. He didn't ask. He just sprung Seaver on me. So you have a new book coming out. I believe it comes out today. Today is Tuesday in podcast release day. Or did it come out? Oh, yesterday? okay. Yep, it is today. The book is called So Many Ways to Lose. It's sort of a, I can't say an ode to the Mets, but in a way it is an ode to the Mets. It's sort of a, historical breakdown of the highs and many lows of the New York Mets through the prism of a longtime Met fan. So now it's interesting. I've had other authors on and I've talked to them about coming out a book coming out during a pandemic. Yeah. And you're coming out hopefully what seems like later in a pandemic where things are starting to open up a little blah, blah, blah. Do you have any idea how to promote this book? No. Um, but to be fair, I don't know that I would have under normal circumstances. Um, it probably would have been um, a lot simpler and more self-explanatory. Um, you know, it's funny. This book was supposed to come out um, in the thick of the pandemic. This book was supposed to come out last August. And initially, you know, like any author, when you find out that your book is going to get moved, you're, you're gutted, right? Um, particularly since in that moment when it happened, which is around probably April-ish, late April, I could kind of see it coming. I was starting to wonder if maybe a book like this was kind of the antidote that people would need while they were stuck at home. And that, you know, in some ways, maybe it would be the perfect time for a book like this. But then very quickly, you just you see all the ways in which that's not going to be the case. The practicalities become so hard. The bookstores, who knows if they'll even be open. And as it turned out, that moment in August was where the wave was cresting across the country. It would have been a disaster. So now... It's a little different in the sense that you feel the sense of people itching for it 
in the way I thought they might have been in August, hopefully. Or at least itching for something. Go outside, watch baseball, go do something. Something happy. Give me something. Right. And so hopefully that's where we are now. Wait, I got to say, this is my favorite topic. Of all the topics I talk about, book promotion is my most, is my favorite by, <laughs> by far. I love it because it's so weird and uncomfortable and unpredictable and there's no clear right or wrong answer and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. So in fact, let's go back. You, um, you think the book is coming out months ago. Yes. Someone from HarperCollins, HarperCollins is your publisher, calls and says, all right, Devin, we're thinking of pushing the book back. Or maybe your agent calls and says, we're thinking of pushing the book back. Is your first inclination to say, no, that's a terrible idea? I was sure it was a terrible idea. I was sure. I mean, my agent started to um, bird level, wonderful UTA, love him. Um, he has helped my sanity through this mostly by saying, would you just shut up and chill? Um, which is kind of what I need usually. Um, but I was thoroughly opposed to moving the date. I was strongly of the opinion that this was a moment when it looked like the baseball season might not even happen. And I am often, you know, as a former magazine guy, I, I like to zig when other people zag. I thought this book was kind of a zig in terms of zagging for sports books. And I thought, you know, this might be the only thing Mets get this year. You know what I mean? If you're a Mets fan, you might not get baseball games. You might only have a book about the Mets. So maybe this is actually a great time to do it. But it turned out that the time, I was completely wrong. And so my agent sort of was sort of bracing me for it. I could sort of sense that it was coming. And then they told me, and I was like, do I get a chance to make an argument? Or is this decided? And they're like, yeah, go ahead, make an argument. But it was decided. And they were right. I mean, my God, my God. I mean, thank God it didn't come out in August. Thank God it's coming out now. It's a funny thing because um, I've probably had, I don't know, I've written nine books. I probably had three pushed toward a secondary date. Uh -huh. And my instinct is always, no, that's a terrible idea. What are you doing? And I honestly think if we're just being honest, for most of us, it's because we don't want to freaking wait any longer. I don't think there's like a... Right. No, you're right. I think in retrospect, the the at least 70% of it, like I'm sure, like I do think that there was 30% rational logic to it, but my logic was wrong. Mm -hmm. And the other 70% was a completely wrong instinct. You know, you just, you've done this thing, you get wedded to a date, you think that the movement of that date constitutes some kind of failure or rejection of the book. Even though like at the time, all my friends were saying the reverse. They were like, you want your book out, out of the way of this. You thank God they're moving it. That's a sign. They like your book. Right. Like that's, they want, they don't want to bury it in this crap. So everybody was giving me the right advice and I wanted the book out in the world. Yeah. I think you're right. Was it so, so would you say it was the right decision all three times or is that a more complicated question? Uh, I would say mostly it was okay. I, the, the, the most interesting discussion we had was my last book, which, which was about the Shaq Kobe Lakers and it was after Kobe died and there was this debate what to do with it. And we ended up keeping the date. And I think that was okay. I don't know. I just think mostly when I'm arguing for it, being completely honest about it, I'm arguing for my own sanity. And the idea of waiting another six months, waiting another nine months, waiting a year. My USFL book got pushed back. I just, and, and I was miserable about it. And then it didn't make a fuck's worth of difference. The book came out and it came out. Yeah. I mean, this was, you know, one of the things that I realized I was being told was this was April, right? April 2020. 
And the, the date that they were saying was, I think it was actually March 2nd initially. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's, it's March 16th now. And you're basically being told your, your life is on hold for a year. You're on, you know, you're on hold for a year. You know, I'm a first time author. So getting going on another book wasn't really an option, you know, certainly not a logical one. And, you know, writing magazine stories, which was what I've been doing all along um, for the last couple of years since I switched back to writing, um, there's only so much of that you can do and sort of launch quickly and get moving on, particularly under pandemic circumstances. So I was kind of just waiting for life to, and like, at, at least, I, I don't want to say that this was a benefit, but we were all going through that, right? We were all sort of waiting for our lives to resume. And I think having that kind of communal feeling was one of the only things that made it sane. So to have that happen when everybody else was just going about their normal lives, I think that would have been really rough. So, you know what I mean? So I, you know, I wonder what that was like for you when they're like, look, there are strategic reasons why we're doing this, but you're like, but there's no pandemic going on. What the hell? I actually think it's really interesting. I, I didn't even think of going here with this conversation, but I love this stuff. Like um, here you are. So you and I, you graduated college four years after I do. You went to Duke. So I assume you're in your approaching your mid forties in that range. I'm 48. And we both came up in an era or at least came along in an era where it was a bountiful amount of freelance work to do. And if you did it well and did it right, and there was GQ and there was details and there was Vanity Fair and there was ESPN and SI, a million different places where you could be like, all right, this book is going to come out late, but I'm just going to shit stuff with freelance work. Yes. That well is a little dry right now. I mean, it's yeah. just not the same. What do you do in that year when between when you think your book is coming out and now, oh shit, it's not coming out. And I don't have the book track record yet to start pitching another book because this book hasn't even come out yet. Like that seems like a pretty rough little year. Yeah, you slowly go broke is what happens, right? I mean, I was a little bit fortunate in the sense that the timing of my advances, there was one in the middle right there, right? Yeah. So like- they postponed the pub date of the book, but my advance comes in three chunks and I still hadn't gotten my sec- second chunk yet. Like that, I didn't get that until like after I needed it, let's put it that way. But I did get it around July or August, you know, so, so there was like a bridge. And then my wife is, you know, is working here, but you know, she's, she was starting, she was opening a gallery during all of this. You know, it's a gallery in town that, you know, was something that she, never imagined she could do, but in the reverse of how these things work, you know, the reverse of how it was working for me, it, the pandemic actually created this sort of once in a lifetime opportunity where she could get rent on an incredible spot in the main drag of town because a GNC had abandoned it literally in the, in the dead of night and screwed over the owner. So, you know, we've looked at it as sort of like two sides of the coin, right? It, the, the, the pandemic put my career on hold for a year, but it also created sort of the, the breakthrough that's triggered an incredible break in her career. I mean, I don't know about you, but having, you know, by being this old and having lived through something similar to this in 2008, 2009, with the economic crisis, the recession there, you do start to file away like a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, right? These can often be very, if you're lucky enough to survive and be okay, when you are, you know, have the mental capacity to focus on your, your career and what you want to do next and get back to your, you know, your creative existence. It's a moment of 
huge opportunity if you see clearly enough. So I'm interested in what that's going to be like for, for folks like us, right? Like, I don't know necessarily that what I'm hoping for coming out of this is a return to the bounty of freelance opportunities. I, I kind of hope it's something a little bit more, a better, a better version of what we used to have. I don't know what that would be, but I don't necessarily want to go back to the old way either. I just want to say for people who don't know, who are listening to this and don't know, generally when you, uh, when you get a book deal, you get, uh, I mean, they call it an advance. And let's say you get $100,000 for a book. You usually get paid in three or four installments. You get signing the deal, submitting the first draft, hardcover coming out, and oftentimes paperback coming out. You got in three, so I'm guessing it's hand get signed the deal. Yeah. Uh, book approved, hardcover coming out. Yeah, yeah, and maybe that's because they're like, we'll see about the soft cover coming out. Um, but like, one of the things that that was interesting though, again, for people who may have not been through this experience, that middle chunk is a very, very fluid moment, right? I was under the understanding that I got it when I turned in my manuscript. That would be a no. And when my editor looked at it and said, okay, it's not ready. We got a lot of things to do, but this is a book. We're going to publish this. You get your, here you go. You get your, you get your second chunk of your race. That is so far from you know, I reached that moment, I think, around mid-February, early March of 2020. I mean, we were already on a tight turnaround, um, but I didn't actually get my second advance until July. Yeah. So that's four months waiting for my income in a pandemic, right? So, um, I mean, lucky I was getting like, paid for a few stories that I had done buff just before the pandemic. Um, but, you know, that's that's rough. And... I don't think that there are too many professions like this where over the course of 18 months, you're maybe getting that one big infusion of a check and you're not really at all clear on when it's coming. And it's not, it's not in your hands at all. I'll tell you one thing I've learned through the years is the ideal place to be in the book world. I actually learned this somewhat recently is we've written enough books where people start optioning your book for stuff and you start making money off of past titles. I never thought about that. I never thought about that until recently when someone will be like, oh, they want to option whatever, the bad guys won and they'll pay you X amount for a six month option and blah, blah, blah. And they want to make a so-and-so. And 99.9% of the time, nothing comes of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're getting money for nothing. Mm -hmm. That's actually, it's not always huge checks, but you get money for nothing. And I feel like if you can start generating stuff off of stuff, then you're in a, that's when you're. Yeah, I guess maybe that's, you know, when I'm referring to the sort of return to the freelance model that I'm not hoping for. Yeah. I think that that's what you, that's what I mean, because, you know, I'm doing a story for the Atlantic right now that I'm very, very excited about. But the idea that this book is coming out before this article is heartbreaking to me. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a story that I was really, really interested in, but it's a very small thing that has spiraled into something that I think is quite a, a good story but I'm doing it for an obscenely low amount of money that, that is no, I mean, I think I'm probably on about a penny an hour at this point, considering how much work I've, I've put into it. That's just not sustainable. That's not sustainable on its own, no matter how successful the story might turn out to be. If it gets 2 million people reading it and it has a huge impact on whatever field it's in, I can't make a living doing this if that's all it is. And so 
the universe in which it seems like we're heading. It's uh, you can tell me since it seems like this is happening a little bit, but it seems like there's a, a boom in, in sports documentaries happening across a variety of platforms, especially on the streaming platforms. And that's what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Is versions of the option rights, the podcasts that it becomes the documentary that it becomes something. Otherwise, if it's just the words, this is going to be hard to, to keep up. Cause I, I feel like, I don't know that that's coming back. You know what I mean? Like the rate, I think those, those freelance assignments may come back. I don't think the word rates are coming back. I think that ship sailed. You know what I mean? But like, I also don't you think people somewhere along the line, retweets became currency. Yeah. You're going to write this and it's going to be great. Cause we're going to use all our social media and put it out. And it's like, that doesn't, that doesn't buy me a can of beans. Like that doesn't buy me anything. So it's weird though. That's become a currency, but it's not a living wage currency. It's an ego. currency. I I don't really know. I mean, maybe this is what you were sort of getting at or circling around at the beginning, which is, I don't really know what works. I mean, I don't have an opening night event planned for my book, which is, you know, partly a pandemic, right? I don't, I haven't pushed them to do a zoom thing. I don't have one planned. I'm planning to have dinner with my family. Um, that sounds fun. Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, at first I was a little worried about this. Like, shouldn't, shouldn't I be doing this stuff? And my editor was like, nah, that doesn't matter. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> well, what, what, what matters? Tell me what matters. And, you know, he's like, well, getting millions of people's eyeballs on it matters. I'm like, well, you know, okay, that's easy. You know, like, that's not, I mean, like HarperCollins, in theory, is supposed to have the apparatus to do this. But the mechanisms that they're deploying, you know, Twitter ad buys or Google ads or Amazon ads or placement in bookstores and online books, like, which of it actually works? What works? Because I'm not sure. No. I will okay. give you the answer where it works. I swear to God. Yeah. You have to assume your publishing company is going to do nothing. Done. And you have to be a whore. And you have to call in every favor. And you have to put all ego aside. And you have to ask everyone you know. And you have to you have to be the biggest freaking pimp of all time. It sucks. Okay. Okay. But, okay. Well, let's assume that I've, 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 I've prostrated myself enough to get to that point. Which, by the way, I certainly have. Okay. Um, I'm I'm I'm... I'm such a whore. I could have been on that David Simon show. I'm ready to go. But which of those favors that you're talking about, which whoring out actually got you something that was useful? And like, you know, I, like the Sports Illustrated published an excerpt of, of the book. Uh, was it a week ago? Friday. I assume that was very helpful. Did you check your Amazon numbers? I did. And, you know, they, you know, I went from like a billion to 9,000. That's a good climb. Oh, okay. I have no, but I have no idea what those numbers signify. Does that mean that you sold four books and now you've climbed from a book that like the other billion effectively doesn't exist into the realm of existence, which is the cutoff of 9,000, like 9,000 means your book exist in the universe and someone outside of your family has bought it. Right. Um, is that what that means? Like I was third 
in the baseball category for two days behind two different versions of the 2021-ish edition of Baseball Prospectus, which in my mind, I was two. That's bullshit. That's 1A, 1B, and I'm two. I'm calling it. I don't care. But, you know, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I mean, now I'm down to like 36 or something like that. I don't know what any of those things mean. I, like, I think CBS this morning, assuming I didn't get bumped this morning by, you know, a Trump indictment or something like that. Like, I assume that that's really helpful, right? I think one of the things that does help being help you sell books is already being famous, right? Already having 50,000 Twitter followers who already, but I don't have those. I have a bunch of writers and editors who know me from being a writer and editor for 20 years. All right, since this is, I enjoy these conversations, I'm literally gonna tell you if I were you what I would do, okay? Right. All right, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying what I do if I'm in your shoes at this point, okay? Number one, I reach out to anybody and everybody on Twitter who has a Met blog, a Met podcast, a Met anything. Okay. And I say, you know, I would, you know, blah, blah, blah. Can I get you a so-and-so? Can I send you the PDF of the book? Blah, blah, blah. Everybody, right? Number two, my biggie is, so publishing companies are very much against the idea of having too many excerpts, right? Oh, if you do too many, it's blah, blah, blah. That's horrible advice. Like I found the more excerpts, the better. And then you just need your Amazon link in there. And the publishing company is going to say, no, link it to the Harper Collins page or link it to the so-and-so. And you go, yeah, okay. And then you don't do it. You link it to the Amazon page because the Amazon number, if you have a high Amazon number, all of a sudden it catches a buzz. The book just catches a buzz because it shows up on Amazon, top seller, blah, blah, blah. The list and everything builds on itself. And like, I start following, like, if you notice my Twitter, I, I have the lamest Twitter per uh, ratio in the world. And so every now and then someone will say to me, Hey, loser, nice ratio. I'm like, I don't give a shit. I'm a freaking middle-aged dad trying to sell books. Right. So I have a Met book coming out. I literally follow every Met fan possible I do <laughs> because it's direct marketing. And then they yeah. follow you back and you're, they're directly seeing all your tweets about the book. I'm just all about everything Mets, any publication, any radio, blah, 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 across the board. And just like saturate it. I'm not saying you haven't done that, but that's what I do. We've done 50 to 70% of that and not nearly as aggressively as, 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 we, as we probably should. I mean, the Amazon thing is one thing that I wonder a lot about is because people have been asking me is like, you, you know, would you, do you care who I buy it from? And because, you know, because I'm a pinko communist, I always say, buy it from your local bookstore, right? right. Buy it from your new bookstore, which I really do believe, by the way, mm-hmm. buy it from your local bookstore. I do too. Buy a second copy from Amazon. And I do have to get more focused on that because I do know how much, that's the thing is, is I think the real answer behind this is what really matters is some algorithm that you need to jam yourself into somehow. Right. That's what we're all trying to do is plug your book into the algorithm that gets it in front of people. And, it, and, and to me, that's why I think it makes sense what you're saying about the excerpts, because all you're doing with the excerpts is taking more swings to get your, you know, into the algorithm more. I mean, I have four excerpts for this book. I know you had SI. I have SI. Bloomberg Business Week is coming out the day over the Bobby Benia chapter. GQ is running um, a chapter about Bartolo Colon's home run, which was the biggest home run in Mets history. Let that sink in. And then the Atlantic 
on opening day is going to run an ex is basically going to exit the prologue. The prologue is basically a defense of my title claim that the Mets are the best worst team in sports. And the prologue is sort of the argument, the case for that. And you know, I think the Atlantic liked the sort of polemicalness of that. So that's what it is. I mean, the book comes out March 16th. So we're trying to, you know, be everywhere for those two weeks. And, you know, ESPN daily is going to do something. So like we're trying to, and that's going to be post pub date before opening day. So the whole idea was to try to have a, a two week window where you could have a bunch of different things. I, you know, I feel like I've got enough set up so that if it doesn't catch, it's clearly either because people don't like the book or because fundamentally in this day and age, you need to have some kind of basic social media presence and visibility, a brand that's attached to your name already, which I don't really have. So maybe I need the help. My wife wrote a book. She was a first time author. She's a social worker and she wrote a book called Ignore It about, um, it's about parenting, right? Mm -hmm. And she came up with this idea that I copied where she sent the book in a box with like maybe a shirt or something to like, I don't know how many, 20 social media influencers who are parents. Mm -hmm. And she ended up getting Kirsten Bell to Instagram go crazy about it. And I will say like I did with my USFL book, I end up making shirts and I sent the book and I, I picked like 20 different celebrities. I did it with my Laker book. It did not go over as well. It just didn't, but that's okay. But the USFL book, it did. And maybe one idea, maybe find the 10 biggest Met fans. That I have done. That yeah. I very much did. And you just hope Matthew Broderick. Right. You enjoyed your Mets book. I hope you enjoy it. Um, Jerry Seinfeld. That's I mean, good. Two and a half years trying to get a book in Jerry Seinfeld's hands. And at the very least, I've gotten it to um, someone who could theoretically hand it to him at a minimum. Fun fact, uh, two different mail mailing addresses for Jerry, depending upon whether you're sending it USPS or FedEx. Interesting. I do, do with that information what you will. I don't know why, but it's two different addresses. You know what's sad about it all is, um, I've said this before in this podcast, it really is like I have hanging up here behind me Right there is a, you can't see it well, but that was a Sports Illustrated cover excerpt when I wrote a book about Walter Payton. That was a huge deal for me. If you said to me right now in 2021, you can have your book excerpted on the cover of Sports Illustrated or Justin Bieber will post a copy of him reading your book on Instagram. Yeah. I know you're holding your head in your hands and I agree. I'm taking Bieber every single time. If, if the folks, if everyone at the top of Sports Illustrated gathered in a conference room and we could ask them right now, which would you take? They'd all tell you to take the Bieber photo. Of course. Yeah. This is what it is. Yeah. And that's why I sort of wonder what works, how you get it out there. I mean, you know, one of the things I think one of the rationales behind a book like this is that if I don't have a big name, well, the Mets do. So the Mets are the celebrity in this case. The Mets are the celebrity author in this case. And if you, you know, if you connect your book enough to the idea that it is a valid Mets exploration, it gets blessed by Mets truthers. Um, and, you know, it's authentic. It's something that, that it's not BS. Um, then the Mets can become the star that, that drives your book. And the fact that I'm unknown is fine. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who has an exciting marketing idea for 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You know the 38% of Americans who don't trust the COVID vaccine? Sadly, I do. 
Well, they're idiots. So what if we tell them that we agree there is no virus and that the vaccines are a liberal hoax and the true passageway to God's orange MAGA kingdom simply involves going to 503-sports.com and ordering a throwback t-shirt? I don't really get it. Dad, America's population is 330 million. 38% of that is 125 million. If even 1% of those folks believe me, we're rolling in the dough. I know, this feels dishonest. It's not. It's American exceptionalism. I just want to say, number one, I greatly, greatly enjoyed this book. I truly did. And it spoke to me as a a mech guy. And um, I'm fascinated by much of it. And the thing that um, I wanted to talk to you about, you have a chapter just about Mackie Sasser. And who I alluded to briefly, Mackie Sasser basically was this really good hitting catcher back in the day, late eighties, early nineties. And um, he suddenly lost the ability to throw. He just lost the ability to throw baseball back to the pitcher or really effectively at all. And um, it's funny because I, I, I think you didn't write the first Met book in history, but um, you, you wrote the only, you definitely have, are the only guy to write a chapter on Mackie Saster. And the title of the chapter is how Mackie Saster got the yips. It was joyful and funny and sad. You you wrote, um, it was a strange subspecies of the yips, a kind no one had ever seen. One of the best hitters I've ever seen, Frank Viola said to me at a mention of Sasser's name, couldn't get the ball back to the pitcher. The yips are mostly a golf thing, a mental game affliction with symptoms that flare up during gimme putts. The symptoms vary across sports, but all of them boil down to an athlete's sudden inability to execute a routine play of some kind, a psychological block that feels like a physical paralysis. But Sasser was a catcher, so the routine throw that he could no longer make was a soft toss back to the mound after every pitch. He could still pop out of his crouch and fire the ball down to second. He could still catch. He could still hit. It was just this one tiny thing, like the ball had fused with his hand, like it had been glued to his skin while he slept. Now he couldn't get it off, even if he shook it. No one knew what to do. No one had ever seen this before. Once in a generation, it happens. And while it may seem like a particularly messy fate, well, Dodgers have gotten the yips too. Yankees have had the yips. MVPs have had the yips. And then you track down Mackie Sasser and you talk to Mackie Sasser while he's on his exercise bike at his home in Alabama. I could see people being like, chapter on Mackie Sasser. It's so obscure and so micro. And I freaking loved everything about it. Why a Mackie Sasser chapter? I mean, the Mackie Sasser chapter was sort of one of the chapters that was at the core of why I wanted to do the book. You know, that Andy Chavez, there's a chapter about Andy Chavez, that chapter. Uh, and Metal the Mule, which is a chapter about um, um, the moment in the late 70s when the Mets were at their very worst. And the new owners or one of the owners, they decided to fire Mr. Met and replaced him with a mule. That's awesome. About eight and those three stories, you know, um, Andy, the Andy Chavez story is about an amazing catch in the 2006 NLCS that that would have been, I think, the greatest postseason catch in history if the Mets had won the game, which, of course, they did not. Um, they blew it in spectacular fashion because we're the Mets. And those three things, those three stories seem to line up in a certain way, in a certain Metsy truth of the Mets kind of way. Most Mets stories, most of those Mets books um, are about 1969 when we won the World Series in 1986 when we won the world series and those are the only two times Mets have won the world series and you had already done the best Mets book ever written. Oh, shut Uh, up. Come on. Oh no, that's true. That's true. The only comparison, the only, the only one that, that, that is in the debate is can anyone here play this game? And that's 
And that's like, you know, back in 1962, that's a whole different generation. Um, oh, and that's the other thing that gets covered is the 62 Mets in a very, very vague right. comic way. But usually that's part of a story. And, and there, there are virtually no standalone books about it that um, are out there where I would have found them. Um, those stories, those two stories, 86 um, and 69 are the exceptions to the rule. That's not the Mets. That's not the franchise. Right. The 86 Mets are the only time we've ever had a juggernaut. Right. And we haven't been, we haven't won a world series since that's, you know, what, 35 years now, the 69 team is known as the miracle mess. And one thing that I've always wondered is, you know, they were this young, talented, loaded pitching, fantastic team, seven years. They've only been a franchise for seven years and here they are winning the world series. Why are they the miracle Mets now and not the dynastic Mets? What happened? Right. Why was 69 the only time they went to the World Series, except for five, you know, four or five years later when it was almost a complete accident? What happened? What did they, how did they blow it? And so, and then knowing what I knew about your, from your story about the 86 Mets, it seemed to me that there was also a way to begin the story of 1986 from a very, very different perspective than it had always been told, which was begin with the World Series title. Right. And then chronicle the demise of the team. And so suddenly you started, I started to feel like the book would be about losing. And what we all think of as the Mets sort of superpower or what people who aren't Mets fans think of us for is just this, oh my God, can you believe what the Mets did now? Can you believe what they did now? And people often think of the Mets as a terrible team, but we always have like superstars always. There's always like, Mets always have like a superstar or two on their team. We go to the playoffs a lot more than some teams out there. We only, we went to the world series five years ago. We've been to the world series more recently than Yank than the Yankees have. Okay. So fuck you Yankee fans. Number one, but like that 2015 world series, most people don't remember it. Like, if you tell people that the Mets lost to the Kansas city Royals in a world series six years ago, they're like, no, they didn't, that didn't happen. Right. You know? So like, that's our team. And that felt more like a place to come from. And Mackie Sasser fit into that because here was this amazing story of someone who had literally was literally the heir apparent to Gary Carter, the core of the 86 team came out of nowhere, became like a threat to win a batting title. And within six weeks of it coming all together and him breaking out of nowhere, it fell apart. This was all in one summer. It wasn't like, you know, he busted out, had a good year or two, and then got the yips. He got the yips while he was busting out. His career was lifting off as it was imploding. And that alone seemed fascinating. But the other thing is, I knew that he had figured it out because there was a very short um, online ESPN 30 for 30 about how he had fixed it. And they, and they actually show you, they capture on camera sort of a moment of incredible breakthrough. Right. Um, and so I wanted to just catch up and see what the end of that story was and where he was now. He was great to talk to. No more like, did you just get his number in a directory somewhere? And did you assume he would talk to you walk into these interviews, assuming guy's going to talk to you? It's his email addresses. He's a, he's the coach of uh, the right. Dothan Community College baseball team. It's you go to Dothan Community College. His email address is right there. So I emailed him, and yeah, he emailed back. He's like, sure, I'll talk to you. 
Um, he, I was worried that he wouldn't want to talk to me, of course, because this is a very, very delicate subject. But as soon as I got on the phone with him, he was like, no, it's, I really like talking about this. It's like, it helps me. It feels good to have this burden out there, uh, off my, sh- you know, I think because he solved it, it feels like a release now to talk about it. And that was obviously a relief because it made it a lot easier to have these conversations, but also kind of fascinating to, to delve into his character. Um, and he's just like, you know, he's, he's a hilarious country boy character too. So that was really, really fun to talk to him. You know, his accent is amazing. And especially when he was ticking through all the wackadoodle things that people tried on him when he was talking about some Seattle doctor who smoking marijuana, you know, oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah. And I was like, so he gave you marijuana. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like, no, no, he was, high. I was like, so you were in the room and he was smoking marijuana. He's like, no, 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 but. I know when someone's high when I see one and I just, he just had this fantastic diction to him and those characters I've always loved and they've always felt more like the real Mets to me than, you know, in some ways the triumphant 86 story, which only feels right to me about the Mets once it starts falling apart. Right. I just want to say, I love this book. I think it's great. I think it's great. I love the love you put into it and the passion you put into it. And like, I don't know, just like, it was a very warm blanket of a book and you could have easily written a book. You didn't yeah. take the lazy approach. The lazy approach would have been, oh, the fucking Mets, they always let you down because we all say that. But the truth of the matter is they're actually a pretty good franchise overall. We have, it's, it's the highs and the lows that make us who we are. I agree hundred percent. So I think the book is great. And um, I appreciate for you very much for doing this. I appreciate before, before we jump off, I should say, I appreciate you for providing such amazing reporting and groundwork for that. I basically uh, pillaged to write the 86 chapter um, in, in my book. I want 20%. Yeah. You're not going to get a lot. I want to thank today's guest, Devin Gordon, for joining me on two writers slinging yang. You can follow Devin on Twitter at Devin Gordon X and buy so many ways to lose, which is out today, wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Sling and Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make zero dollars for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the one-of-a-kind MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>